Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What's up, everybody? On today's episode, we have the detective who helped solve the Night Stalker murders of Los Angeles back in the 1980s. You know, when I got the homicide, they told me murder solved cases. You have to learn the three S's. Scotch, snitches and shoe leather if you've seen the documentary on netflix you already know who he is gil carrillo gil was a homicide detective for 40 years in the la county sheriff's department and he came on our show today to tell us all about solving the night stalker murders plus what it's like to actually be a murder cop in a city like la and so he put his hands on the car and Richard starts drawing the pentagram on the car because the pentagram would give him strength. He talks about why he did it, the driving force behind all of it. He loved it. He told us all about the rush that he would get from it, how fun it was to be a murder detective, to be a murder cop. I've always said to anybody that wants to go up there, homicide is not a job, it's a lifestyle. Tells us about almost getting killed by a fellow officer in the line of duty. And as soon as I threw my gun down on the ground and my partner threw his, he went, bam, and he shot. So I jumped over the car and I told my partner, it's okay, I got another one right here on my ankle. I said, if he shoots again, I'll dump him. He tells us about interviewing Richard Ramirez, the actual Night Stalker killer, about how he took him down. He had told me that he'd, about seven years, he'd be willing to sit down and talk to me and tell me about some more murders that he committed here in L.A. County that we were unaware of. He walked in one day and he's all shackled up and he said, Orale Carrillo. He gave us the raw details about his thought process during the Night Stalker investigations. I was telling Frank, is it wrong for me to want another murder? I wanted somebody else to die. We needed another clue. The effect that it had on his family and his relationship with his wife. I'm going and we're not coming back till this is over with. And she just started getting stuff with thrown in bags. She drove off in her car and I drove off in mine. His own demons and what he had to wrestle with while he was taking down these brutal murderers. I'd been drinking too much and I just wanted to stop. I'm a different man since this case. It's just changed me. It is the most fascinating story that we have ever had here on The Connect. And of course, guys, if you want extra content, if you love the show, go support the Patreon, patreon.com slash The Connect Show. It's the best way to support us. We hope you guys love Gil as much as we loved interviewing him. This is The Connect with Johnny Mitchell. When you go back in criminal history, nobody has ever been documented doing what Richard did. They didn't believe one man was doing what I was alleging. That's when I see lights behind me start to flash. And I didn't even think, I just hit it. I was driving like my life depended on it. Then I parked the car, hopped out, closed the door, and I started running. And he pulls out a burner, shanks, like six inches. And then he passes it to me. And he goes, here, that's yours. Don't ever leave the cell block without this. He was the reason I made it out of that place alive. So after the doc came out, do you find yourself, you got a hot, you have profile now, at least in oh, LA. Sure. They, I, uh, when they did the doc, I told the uh, director, uh, Tiller Russell, he said, mm-hmm. well, this is the way I want the show to go. I said, I don't want to know how you want the show to go. You're the professionals. It's your show. Yeah. You do it. And he said, okay, 
Well, then as we go along, you know, we'll just show you where we've, I said, I don't want to see any unedited cuts. It's your show. Yeah. I'll watch it when everybody else watches it. So that's what we did. Yeah. And he called me up a couple hours before it dropped. He said, it's going to drop tonight. Enjoy the ride. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, just what I said, enjoy the ride. I'll talk to you in a few days. And I watched the documentary with my wife. Uh, I laughed. I cried. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, it was way better than I ever thought it was. I don't know what I anticipated, but it came out way better than I thought. Uh, it was very accurate, and uh, I was happy. And, and and during, as soon as it was done, I had to uh, ask my wife for forgiveness because I had never during the during the case, uh, dear. Your job is the house and the kids. My job is catching the killer. And I was never home. I mean, I was gone. My captain, uh, he's dead. They can't do anything to him now, but he's quoted in the paper as saying these guys are working 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, which is a violation of federal law. Right. You you, you couldn't do that FSLA, and and we weren't getting paid for it either. Uh, But they couldn't stop us from working. You know, we were Mm -hmm. driven. And so I apologize for I never factored in fear. Mm -hmm. She was scared to death, and that's why she ended up moving out. Yeah, you moved the family out uh, to like your her your in laws place. Yeah, I didn't move them out. She moved. Yeah. She took off. Yeah, she says, and I ain't coming back till this thing's over with. Yeah. So she left. She did. I was calling her the bag lady. She didn't even put suitcase. She just grabbed bags. And my thirteen year old daughter, my kids were uh, seven, ten, and thirteen at the time. My thirteen year old said she could hear my wife and I talking because my wife said, "Where's it at?" I said, "It's in Diamond Bar." She says, Gil, don't mess around. Diamond Bar is right next to where I live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. Don't, don't mess around. It's nothing to fool around. I said, God damn it, I'm not fooling around. This is where it's at. I showed her. And I said, hey, but now that you're up, dear, you know, go back to sleep. And then a few hours, get up, go to the market. About two, three this afternoon, I'll bring about 20 people down here. We'll have some lunch. And she just said, bullshit. And that's not my wife. My wife is, I call her sister Mary Clarence. Uh, she doesn't use profanity shit, bullshit. She says, I'm going and we're not coming back till this is over with. My daughter said, mom, should I get some, get the kids up? She says, yes, get your brother and sister up, tell them they don't have to change. And she just started getting stuff put, thrown in bags. And she drove off in her car and I drove off in mine. And she was staying between her parents' house and my house. Mm -hmm. Did you give her a piece? Did you give her some heat? No, no, I didn't know. she afraid she'd use it on me <laughs> right she's, now, a, she's afraid of guns does mess around with guns doesn't like them in the wake of all that what did you do to rebuild your relationship uh groveled <laughs> begged <laughs> you know, it was uh you know it, it was really really tough it was a tough time i remember uh channel four laurel erickson and paul skolnick uh invited us out to a dinner and we went to dinner after the case uh, after he was arrested, before the case had gone to trial, we went to go see Johnny Carson, and then they took us to a nice dinner. And they sat there, and they started getting in their cups. And my wife was drinking. My wife doesn't drink that much. But she was drinking, and Laurel was drinking, and I wasn't drinking at all. I said I'd been drinking too much, and I just wanted to stop. Mm. I, hadn't, I hadn't had a drop in over 30 days. Mm-hmm. Were you and, drinking a lot with Salerno during the 
well, during the know, investigation? We, during at homicide, you drink a lot anyway. But, of course. Uh, we didn't have that much time to drink during the investigation. We were too, we were working too hard and too tired to mm-hmm. drink. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have more than a couple of drinks before you had to get home. Yeah. Because you were exhausted. And, but at that time, I could tell you, I was drinking Quervo Gold. Quervo Gold gives you breath of a buffalo's ass. <laughs> if you have one, may as well have a half dozen. It yeah. make a difference. Yeah. I'd get home and she'd go, working late again, huh? And I go, yeah. And she'd go, tells me like you've been drinking. <laughs> You know, so, wasn't so you're working good, too late yeah, and you're having fun. Yeah, it wasn't the a wives good, don't like yeah, that. Yeah, it wasn't a good time. We go out to dinner, and pretty soon I look, and my wife is crying. And she's confessing to Laurel Erickson that she believes that we're headed for divorce. I'm a different man since this case. It's just changed me. And I looked at her, and I said, keep your personal problems to yourself. Laurel, I better not hear... Homicide investigator headed for a divorce film at 11. Right. I said, it stays here. Mm-hmm. I said, I hadn't drank because I thought it was best for myself. Waiter, go over rocks and don't let the rocks hit the bottom of the glass. Just keep them coming. <laughs> and so then we just worked on trying to get things together. And we've now been married. 52 years. That's great. All right, you guys, it's that time to thank my favorite new sponsor of the Connect, Breeze Pipe. You guys, are you tired of the throat burn, chest pain, or coughing attacks when you light up? For the smoothest cannabis smoking experience, you got to try an icy freeze pipe. Freeze Pipe makes a unique line of freezable pipes, bubblers, and bongs that cool smoke by over 300 degrees. Bam, look at that beauty. The secret is detachable glycerin chambers that come on every piece, like such. Pop one of these chambers in the freezer for one hour, and as smoke passes through it, it's instantly chilled for a dramatically smooth toke. Proven to outperform traditional pipes and bongs, simply inhale and relax as freeze pipes combo of percolators and icy glycerin chambers do all the heavy lifting for you. You guys, I quit smoking for years because I am an old man and I couldn't handle the lung burn and the coughing attacks of smoking regular pipes or bongs. And then I got freeze pipe, my whole world changed. Look at that beauty. Not only is it like a revolutionary way to smoke, I mean, you could use it as like a flower vase on the Thanksgiving table. It's amazing. You guys, if you're tired of the coughing attacks, if you're tired of, you know, coughing up a lung, then you gotta get freeze pipes for a premium smoking experience at everyday great prices and free shipping. Visit thefreezepipe.com. That's thefreezepipe.com and use promo code CONNECT for 10% off your entire order. That's thefreezepipe.com. Listen, potheads. Thefreezepipe.com and use promo code CONNECT for 10% off your order. And domestic shipping is always free. We are very grateful. This is an amazing product, you guys. Support them because they support the show. All right, let's get back into it. Did things, I imagine things were better once he finally got sentenced in 89. Like well, that was a sense of like relief in moving on. It, 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 it was, except for uh, Sister Mary Clarence, first off, the day he was arrested, she was pissed off because he wasn't dead. Uh, Did she want you to kill him? Not, I don't know if she wanted me or somebody. She wanted somebody right. to kill him. She wanted him dead. You said in the documentary... You were 50-50. Part of you wanted him to just pull a gun oh, out yeah. and go out blazing. The I, other part of you wanted to I wanted talk him to dead. 
I wanted him dead because so much work has gone into it. He can't hurt anybody else mm -hmm. and it's over with. And we don't have to worry about trial and attorneys right. or anything else. Uh, the other part was I wanted him live. I wanted to talk to him. I thought it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to him. I'm glad I did. Mm -hmm. We had a good relationship going in. Mm -hmm. uh, did you ever visit him when he was upstate in San Diego? Uh, yeah, I went up there. I had to go up there once. Wow. And uh, when he saw me, we were in court here. He walked in one day and he's all shackled up and he said, Orale Carrillo, <laughs> which is a, a great way sure. to greet you out on the streets. Hey, what's up? Yeah. You know, that, that's up, all he's saying. So all the uh, media ran outside. You know, they, was it a death threat? They thought something was going on. The only one that didn't uh, was Tony Valdez from Channel 11, uh, who just recently passed away, whose funeral I'll be attending tomorrow. He, uh, he knew what it was. Mm -hmm. and we were good friends, and we just continued that friendship. So every time he'd call me up or we had something to say, he went to a book signing that I did with another guy at the L.A. Library, and I'm telling the story about how Richard walked in and said this, and mm -hmm. it was a big deal. And then out of the dark crowd, because we're lit up, mm -hmm. I hear this, Aurelio Carrillo, and it was Tony Valdez sitting out in the <laughs> audience. Yeah. Uh, he was a good man. So when you went up to visit Richard Ramirez when he was in San Quentin, he was on death row, uh, died of cancer before he could get executed. How did you feel about that? Did you want to see him get executed? I didn't did, see did... him. I didn't see him while he was incarcerated. I saw him when he took him to court. Okay. Uh, by that time, uh, he had gotten married after. He had told me that he'd, about seven years, he'd be willing to sit down and talk to me and tell me about some more murders right. that he committed here in L.A. County that we were unaware of. And we had looked at about eight murders, uh, but there wasn't enough evidence to bring him in. And we didn't want unless it was a solid case. Mm -hmm. So we didn't file any of mm -hmm. those. We just let him go. And uh, but then once he got married, the news media came down my house. Mm -hmm. and what did I think of the marriage? And I thought it was thought it was a mockery of the criminal justice sure. system. He wasn't in there for rehabilitation. He was in there for punishment, mm -hmm. the death penalty, and mm -hmm. it's a mockery of the sacrament of marriage. Sure. Although he, Richard, Richard Ramirez had hoes. Oh, he <laughs> did. This guy had bitches. He, he had some good looking brides. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. They were showing him in the documentary, the, the pictures that they were uh, sending into him when he was in LA County. Oh, you didn't see some of the ones that one day, uh, attorneys came in. They were attorneys dressed to the tens. They were suits and briefcases. Yeah. They were watching the proceedings. And Richard, every time he walked in the courtroom, he'd walk in and he'd scan to see who's there, and then he'd sit down. When it's time to leave, he'd go directly back to the nicest-looking lady that he wanted to have contact with, and he'd stare and he'd smile. Well, he goes by. She's sitting on the corner, and she looks at him. She spreads her legs and goes, <sighs> blew him a kiss with her legs wide open. Flashing beef. Yeah, I had been right there at the uh, bailiff's phone because they had called me on the phone. I went back and told my partner, I said, fuck it, hook me up. I want to see if it works for me too. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was easy making. He did have a following in girls. He had one girl, a uh, Philippine young lady. Her name was Bernadette. She was there every day for the preliminary hearing. And I asked him later after trial, I said, whatever happened to Bernadette? He said, well, she kept trying to talk me into going back to the Catholic church. And, you know, that wasn't going to happen. He <laughs> says, last time I talked to her, she was doing porno. Yeah, well, hey, he, shocker. He, he talked her into porno, so there yeah. you go.
Wow. So he was married when he was locked up his whole stretch, kind of like Manson. And when I said that, it got back to him. So all of a sudden he no longer wanted to talk to me because Phil Carlo, a guy wrote the book on the Night Stalker. Phil called me and said, Hey, he wants to talk. He's ready to talk. Yeah. And I said, as long as he's not going to bullshit me, yeah, I'll go up there. And then just about a week later, this came out and then he didn't want to talk to me anymore. Ah, uh, one of my guys went up there on another case, talked to him and he said, no, he didn't want to talk to me anymore. Mm-hmm. So I never did see him again. I have a question about something that I wrote down while, as I was rewatching the documentary this weekend, that, uh, when he committed a murder, stole a car, got pulled over, fled, um, the cops, the precinct who impounded that car stonewalled the sheriff's department, your division just out of ego, right? This is what old, well, I don't, is- I don't, I don't think it was out of ego. I, I, I don't know what was going on. I know the cop that stopped him was officer Starvos, but I won't remember his name. He was a motor officer. Motor officers are just a little bit different. Yeah. You know, they live and breathe for writing tickets. There's sure. traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't stand writing tickets. So I still have an old ticket book from when I was in patrol. You know, they, they do, that's their job. And if I'd have been a traffic cop, then that'd have been my job. Mm -hmm. Well, he stops Richard uh, going over a little loop. He loses him for a second because he ran a red light and he's getting on the freeway. He stops Richard. What he didn't see was Richard dumped out some guns uh, out of the car into the uh, bushes and he stopped and got him out of the car. It was a hot day. He had just tried to kidnap a little girl. That's right. That's what uh, it was. Up the street. And so he put his hands on the car, and Richard starts drawing the pentagram on the car. Yeah. The pentagram would give him strength. Yeah. And then he could hear over the radio, attention, all cars, attempt kidnapping just occurred, vehicle used, suspect described as. He's hearing it going over the PA while Officer Starbos is yeah. getting his greenie out. And Richard takes off. Yeah. And I believe Richard. Richard will tell me that he had a little plastic business card holder. It was a piece of shit thing. And he left it in the front seat of the car. Mm -hmm. Inside was $100. He says, when he heard that going out over the radio and he saw Starbos was worried about getting his books out, Mm -hmm. He took off running. He says, that fat fuck never took a step in my direction. Never tried to chase me down. Mm -hmm. So I knew I was going to get away easy. Right. But what they ended up finding in that car, the, 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 the business card to the dentist office in Chinatown. And only $50. (laughs) There you go. That's it. That's the cops for you. But the, the question I have is, do those cops, you know, it's implied and Salerno even says so. If they're if they had cooperated with you guys right away, you might have found him and prevented I don't know how many more murders. That, that, did, did that, that precinct? Did they feel bad? Was there ever an apology? Like, no, no. And and Frank uh, took things a lot more personally. He was more seasoned than I was. Mm-hmm. So when Frank said jump, he wanted you up in the air saying how high. You know, mm-hmm. he's a very he's. He's a great investigator, yeah. but he wants things done. So he said, hey, we need that done. Mm-hmm. It wasn't done right away. Yeah. So, hey, we need things done. And it wasn't happening. Starvos was supposed to, was on days off. He was due to come back, so we wanted Starvos. And then Starvos called in sick. Right, you know, he okay. We wanted, so he was, so, he was sandbagging right. us. 
And we finally got uh, our captain to make some phone calls and they went and they processed the car. But by now the car had been sitting out in the sun, the fingerprints had been baked yeah. off yeah. and everything was worthless. Yeah. Now do homicide cops, you know, you worked how many years total in the Los Angeles uh, Sheriff's worked, Department homicide th division? 38 years for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. 26 of those years, I was assigned to Homicide Bureau. Gotcha. 21 as an investigator and five as a team lieutenant with 14 investigators working with me. Wow. Okay. And in that time, how many murders total did you clear? How many did you investigate? And then how many were arrests made? That's what that's what it means to say yeah. a case was cleared, right? Well, no, arrest doesn't make it clear. Get a conviction. You conviction clear. makes it yeah, clear. It makes okay. it clear. I can't tell you... Uh, how many convictions I had because once they get beyond me, we either, they either fight them, they go to trial mm -hmm. or they cop out, they take a plea. Mm -hmm. So that's a conviction. Right. But they, I may not get, they'll say, instead of giving you the death penalty, we'll give you LWAP if you'll cop out. Right. And LWAP, so, life without parole. Life without patrol. Gotcha. Parole. So I don't know how many of those are. Okay. Uh, originally, when I first got there, first few years, uh, we had about a 70% clearance rate, which was really high. Very good. Uh, but then as suspects became more mobile and less territorial and more into drugs, then it became more difficult, more difficult and intimidation came in. So murders are really difficult to solve. Interesting. Okay. So this is fascinating to me. So as time goes on and there's more and more surveillance and everything is connected, everybody's uh, you know, we live in this modern oh, no, digitized now you're, world. Now you're talking today. Oh, not, okay. Yeah. Are we talking I've like been, the 90s? Yeah, I've 80s, been gone 90s? for 13 years from okay. that stuff. So okay. they did have surveillance, but not nearly as many as there are today. Right. Okay. But but so it sounds like when you first started in the 70s, you had a higher murder clearance rate than like the 80s and 90s. You had more cooperation more cooperation with everybody. Right. With citizens. And is that because like the eighties and nineties, it was the crack era. It was gang banging. And, and that's kind of what caused all the chaos. And once they got into dope sales, crack mm -hmm. wasn't even around then, uh, back then initially, you know, then we had, uh, they were dealing heroin. Yeah. They were dealing PCP. Yeah. Uh, there was other stuff, but it became territorial. Then, then the, the Crips and the bloods came into this, and they started doing territories and they became very good intimidators. Mm -hmm. So if you talk, then they put pressure over here. So it was kind of difficult. So you to, have less uh, cooperation and sure. therefore less murders getting solved. When, uh, what do you think now? I've heard from, I was, can't remember what I was watching. I think he was the guy, he was the co-creator of the wire and, you know, he used to work uh, the beat, he was a, he was a cop in Baltimore forever. Right. Mm -hmm. He said there's actually less overall, less murders cleared now in today's era than in the 1960s. And he's saying that's because there's more cops that are, uh, and he's blaming the war on drugs. He's saying more cops are assigned to, you know, bust these marijuana traffickers than try to go after, uh, homicides. Is that true? Well, I, I don't know management is doing today with their forces the way they are. Mm -hmm. uh, it is true. They're very, they're difficult to solve. You got multitude of problems and, and, and cops are just like people. Uh, when I was working, uh, they sent 18 of our cops to prison because they were, you know, you'd go do, they were doing money, money deals. 
So some dope dealer would come in here with $500,000 to buy dope. Well, they ain't got no dope from them. They take their $500,000 and they said, well, maybe the county only needs $300,000. Sure. So they started splitting money. Yeah. And ultimately, uh, men don't learn the scorn of an angry woman. And uh, an ex-wife called up and said, hey, you better look into him. Uh, he's he's paying alimony. Yeah. He's got riverfront property, buying boats, motorcycles, and on deputy's pay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. everything's being paid for cash. Yeah. And so that's how the investigation came down. So you, it, there's a lot more cautionary work, who you send where, what they're doing. Uh, it's more difficult. There's more wires going up today, more electronic surveillance going up today. When I say electronic, I'm talking social media stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and social media makes it kind of that, that it's a little more, e- it's a little easier. These, yeah. these guys are not doctors and they talk about what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, amongst themselves. Are there, is there a division in the homicide unit today that just monitors social media? I'm not sure if they, we have, I don't think so. I, I, I will sit there unprofessionally categorize and yeah. say, I don't think so. Uh-huh. We do have a unit that does nothing but wiretaps. Uh-huh. We have a special wiretap. It takes an awful lot of work to get a wiretap up and going. Sure. And, but social media, it's public, public information. Yeah. So the guys just sit there on their own. We have crime mm-hmm. analysts that'll help yeah. out and find tracking this stuff down. How, how has the work changed, uh, the homicide investigation work changed the most dramatically from, from that era versus today, in your opinion? I'm never going to hear the end of this one. They don't drink as much as they used to in the old days. Ah, they're <laughs> fucking boring. <laughs> you know, when I got the homicide, they told me, uh, in order to solve cases, you have to learn the three S's. Scotch, snitches, and shoe leather. And uh, I never did acquire a taste for scotch. But, <laughs> uh, there was, we got together more often and we were cohesive. Sure. Uh, guys, youngsters today, uh, and I know they're going to hate me when they hear this shit. They're not as tight. They don't work together like we used to, you know. It, yeah. There it was for the love of the... You know, back when I when I was there, for the first seven years that I was there, I was the youngest guy in the unit. Mm-hmm. It was unheard of that somebody with, I only had nine and a half years. It takes an average of 15 years to get up there. Yeah. And they wanted my expertise in gangs. So I went up there and everybody was up there because they wanted to be up there and they loved the thrill of the hunt. Yeah. And so, hey, I got a good murder. Hey, you guys want to go out? And you take four guys with you just to go help. They're not even up. They just go out and help you out. Yeah. And that's the way it was. It it just appears that the younger generations are more individual, two guys to a team and they do uh-huh. their own thing and they don't care about what you do. Right. I've heard in places like New York city where there's cameras everywhere. You really, you can't walk a square block without being on film. Most of the homicide investigations happen from the computer. They're just tracking you from, they can track you from the top of Manhattan all the way to the bottom if they want sure. enough, you know, enough it's arduous, but they can track you just bouncing camera to camera, to camera, to camera. Um, maybe that's part of the reason there's just less street work. There's less field work. So therefore, you know, people aren't getting together. I can't, uh, I can't speak for New York. They're a different world, different mm-hmm. team. And, um, uh, 
But at the end, when you before you got ready to retire, did you notice more people, more murders getting solved from from surveillance, or was it still like old fashioned no, old police fashioned, work? Old fashioned, police really? Work. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Low DNA confessions, talking. Yeah. You, you have the ability to talk, and uh, that's what you, you get somebody talking, and and that's what. Frank Salerno used to tell me all the time, you know, that I have the ability to bullshit. Yeah. And uh, he did do your, he was out of town. I got a murder with somebody else. And he says, Hey, I've been reading about this murder. He says, Did you do your specialty? And I said, Yeah, we got him. What's the and specialty? The specialty is, you know, you, you get the guy who committed the murder and you get him talking. Everything's cool. You write down, give me your, it, I want to talk to you, but before I do, you know, I want to protect you. Not about me. I want to protect you. They have these constitutional rights, and I want to make sure that we don't violate them because mm-hmm. I'm I'm only concerned about you. Mm-hmm. And read him his rights. Get him to talk. Start talking. And just give me your name, your address. Just these are questions that I know I'm going to get straight answers to. These are control questions. And then put my pen and paper, push it away from me, and then start talking to the guy about what went on Mm -hmm. and show him that there's absolutely no, um, no personal feelings on my, I have no ill feelings towards him, what he did. Mm -hmm. I understand what he did. I don't care what he did. The dead guy never bought me a drink. I don't know him shit. (laughs) And so you talk to him and you get it all. And so you change your verbiage. You don't like to use the word kill, rob. Yeah. Those Go to prison, mm-hmm. but you know, hey, the guy—the guy brought it upon himself. You gave him some orders. You told him not to do something. He flinched. You didn't know what he was going to do, so you had to take care of business, you know. And you just get him to once he's open, and you say, "Okay, this is what you told me," and you open up. You said that you got there at five o'clock. Okay, five o'clock, and by this time now you're talking openly, and then you give him one last hit. You know, a picture's worth a thousand words. Why don't we put this on video? <laughs> we'll put you on video and this will show the judge that you were cooperating mm. and that you're remorseful for what you did. And if you don't want to, hey, I'm not get him to do it. Not one of those guys that I ever put on video, did they ever go to trial? They always cop out. They always cop out. Yeah. It's it you can't because I'm a big guy. You know, they'll mm-hmm. say oh, you intimidated, you yelled at him, you promised him this mm-hmm. year. You do this and it's, and the only reason people don't get more video cop outs and I still teach this, I still lecture about mm-hmm. this shit is because I'll be in a room with 40 cops. I'd say, how many guys have ever gotten a video cop out and not one hand will go, how many guys in this room have ever asked if they'll do it? Right. Right. And no hand will go up. It's like sales. You're like, you're a salesman. You're selling them. Hey, I'm, I'm doing you. This is for you. I'm going to do you a solid because I like you. Yeah. <laughs> so you got confessions that way. Do you, was that, do you think that's the majority of the the way that you solved murder? No, talking, it, 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 talking, but not all of them did you get videos. Some guys just, no, oh, man, I ain't that stupid. I ain't going to do that. You yeah. know, they're, they're con enough, but they, but just giving a sucker an even break. Yeah. You know, I, I learned this stuff. There was a professor at Cal State LA named Bob Morneau, and I give him all the credit in the world. He taught me that I took two 
semesters of advanced criminal investigation pertaining to sex crimes from him. Mm-hmm. And he says that he's going to give you a word and a definition for purposes of this class only. And the word is sex. And the definition of sex is whatever makes you feel good. So if you can understand that, it's easier to talk to people. I don't care what they've done. And so if I give you a condo in Mammoth, it's snowing outside, you got a white bearskin rug, a flickering fireplace, Mm. soft music, Cabernet Sauvignon, no cell phones, no bill collectors, no kids, just you and that other member of society you want to be with for the night. And that sounds like it may turn into a romantic interlude. Is that easy for you to understand? That you'd be raw and adulterated sex in front of that fireplace? Sure. Okay. Now I give you a guy that can't afford to go to Malibu. Can't afford a bottle of white a Cabernet Sauvignon, so he's got a bottle of white port in his back pocket. He doesn't have a flickering fireplace, but he's got a book of matches. And he can't go to he can't go to Mammoth, but he's in Malibu and he just set the hills of Malibu on fire. Mm-hmm. And now he's in an act of masturbation because he's a pyromaniac and that is sex to him. Right. So if I can understand it, it makes it easier for me to talk to him. I don't condone it. Yeah. I just understand it. And that goes with everything that you encounter in and, life. And Richard Ramirez sex to him was seeing the fear in his victim's eyes. Yes. And that was brilliant because you, you kind of, that was your theory at the beginning Yes, when uh, he left that woman alive. Tell me her name. Uh, Maria, Maria Hernandez. Hernandez. He left her alive. He could have walked up and shot her in the back of the head, but he wanted her to turn around. And you, your theory was that he wanted to see the fear in her eyes exactly. before he killed her. Same thing with Dale Okazaki. Yes. He hit her in the back of the head first, then he shot her in the forehead. Right. Right. You know, silent you drug her out of the car. Then he mm-hmm. shot her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there was, there was that going. And that was from Bob Morneau. Oh, who you, who he, taught he gave you at Cal the, State. He, I, I remember before I went to homicide, I had a gang case and I told my uh, partner, Bubba Williams, Bubba, let's go down to jail. I want to talk to this guy. And he says, well, the night detective, Bobby Melendrez, you just saw him. He went to court right now. He said he interviewed him last night. It was a bullshit case. Robbed a bunch of whores. And I said, yeah, I know, but I want to talk to him. He said, okay, let's go. So we went down there. And what he had done, it was cruising night on Whittier Boulevard. The girls were making a U-turn. He went up, tapped on him. Hey, want a party? Let's go. They let him in the car. Then he got a starter pistol. He got a gun. And he stuck it in the ribs of one of the broads. And said, let's go. We're really going to party. And as they're driving, he says, I want you to kiss me now. He says, kiss me. And so she's kissing him and the other broad was smart enough to sit there and say, hey, we need some booze. We need something. Yeah. Stop by and get something. Stop by a liquor store. And he says, okay, I'm getting off the car with her, but if you scream or leave, I'll kill her. And as she's walking on the sidewalk, there happened to be a cop right there. Mm-hmm. She screamed. They got him, took him in. And he says, yeah, I did it. Look, it's a starter pistol. It doesn't even work. It's just a bunch of whores that didn't want to party. You know, got scared. I don't know what the fuck's wrong with them. Mm. So the night detective had already taken his statement and just sent him down to the jail to get released next day. That's crazy. And so I said, come on, let's go. We went down there and I knew the guy's brother. I had arrested the guy's brother before. And I said, Hey, you know me, I've, I've, t- I've taken your brother Ray to jail before. I said, Ray, tell you I'm a good guy though. And he said, yeah. I said, all right. You know, I know they read your rights, but we got to do it again anyway, man. Just keep this legit. And I said, 
Okay, now, and before we get into your case, I want to tell you, I was reading it. And that point where you stuck the gun in the broad's ribs and made her kiss you. I said, that reminded me of when I was a kid. I was a peeping Tom. I said, and I used to go around and look in windows and find them women. Wow. And when I saw this, man, it just reminded me of those days. But for the grace of God, am I here today talking to you? And the guy sits here and he goes, that's exactly what I did. It was awesome. Wow. And the guy copped out to the whole fucking thing. Wow. So what, what do you, what, what, what's he defined with? Kidnapping. Kidnapping. Send him, send him to the joint. Yeah, huh? totally. Right. Yeah. Wow. So you just obviously made that up. I exactly. Hope. Wow. That, that's all it was. Wow. I mean, even though that is kind of hot demanding a kiss at gunpoint, but so are you, is something about a homicide detective, a little, a little sick or a little, like what is what is the quirk? It's kind of like how therapists they say therapists all need their own therapist. What is it about a murder cop that uh, likes the darkness? It was for me. It was the ability to solve the ultimate crime and be able to have the power to tell people what to do while I'm working. Ah, it's my case. Yes, and and I remember. The very first, uh, one of the first murders I went on, I was a patrol deputy. I had a brand new trainee. It was a, right out of the station, 3 p.m. murder. And the guy, it was two cars parked right behind each other. The guy in the back was honking his horn because the guy in the front wouldn't turn right against the red. No traffic. So the guy in the back got out of the car, walked up to his car, kicked his door. And when he kicked his door, this guy just went, boom. The light turned green and he took off. Wow. And... There was one witness who lived in the house that got a partial license plate. That was it. Mm -hmm. And so I got out there. We were, it was so brand new. We had brand new yellow tape that we something was just given to us. Mm -hmm. And he had sign-in sheets so everybody could sign in. Who's going in and who's going out to keep control of who's going to go inside that crime scene? My watch commander, who was the boss, who I really didn't care for. He came up and I, I said, excuse me, Lieutenant. And I won't mention his name, but he was a dick. And I said, I need to sign in the sheet here. And he says, need I remind you, deputy? You're a deputy and I'm a lieutenant. I'm the watch commander and I do what I want. And I don't sign in for anything yeah. or anybody. I go in where I want. I said, okay. So he went in. A couple of minutes later, here comes a gentleman by the name of Barrett Fitzgerald, who's a sergeant at Homicide Bureau who's my hero and eventually became my lieutenant at homicide bureau. And he says, hello, young man, Barrett Fitzgerald, but just call me Fitz. And I said, okay, sir. He said, no, I said, Fitz, not sir. I said, okay, Fitz. He says, so tell me what went on Gil. And I said, well, I was in briefing. They had a shooting. I got the call and here I am just contained it until your arrival. He said, who's that? in the crime scene over there. I said, that's a watch commander. He said, what's he doing? I said, I don't know. He put me in my place, told me I was a deputy, he was a lieutenant, and he could do whatever he wanted. Didn't have to tell me shit. Didn't have to sign no sign-in sheet either. He's okay, I'll be right back. Hold that thought. He walked over to him and he said, good afternoon, lieutenant. Sergeant Barrett Fitzgerald, which is lower rank than the lieutenant. Mm. And he didn't say, and call me Fitz. 
but he's homicide. So once homicide gets there, it's their crime scene. Right. Now. They, they supersede whatever exactly. the beat cop is that's there. Exactly. Yeah. So he said, uh, you mind me asking you what you're doing here? And he said, well, we just came in, take a look around, see what was going on here. He said, would you mind doing me a favor? He says, get on the other side of that yellow tape and look from out there like everybody else. Nice. Bitch slapped him. And he turned beat red, turned stomp, walked off. Yeah. And I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. Motherfuckers. You want to yeah. have power over people. Yeah, Gil. I wanted to be able. And then to watch these guys, that was at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. I went home that night at 11 o'clock. I come back to work the next day at 3 o'clock. Fitz and his partner are still there. Mm -hmm. They haven't gone home, and they're still in the same suits. Wow. And uh, Jack Fuglin, and they were hard at work. Yeah. They were following up shit, and he looked at me. I had gone in early because I had to go to uh, court. And he says, hey, you want to go to autopsy? I said, yeah. So I went to an autopsy. That was an eye-opener. And But then I just said, no, this is what I want to do. I, mm -hmm. Fascinating to me. Yeah. And he solved the case. He got a portable uh, x-ray machine because he found out that the suspect had been shooting bullets inside his house New Year's Eve. And they found a fucking matching bullet that killed a guy over here. Wow. And Brilliant. I, and I said, man, you're only limited by your own mind. Yeah. Yeah, so it, there's an art, there's a real yeah. art and a creativity to, to solving homicide. Do you think it's an addiction, though? Do you think it's a little bit, like as a comedian, especially when you first start out, you're running around the city doing open mics for no pay and and seemingly no results, uh, but you're just, it's a calling. Do you feel like homicide cops, do you think it's a little bit of a, it, it's a little bit of an obsession for a good cop, for a good homicide cop, I yeah. think it is, most, most, yeah. most assuredly. Yeah. A lot of guys, you have to be worried. I have to be concerned. Uh, guys go up there because they want to be part of Homicide Bureau. Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm the elite. I'm the prima donna. Here right. I am. And uh, they're not good. You know, uh, I've always said to anybody that wants to go up there, homicide is not a job. It's a lifestyle. Yes. And even my wife knows that. Yeah. My wife knows what yeah. goes on. So you love the hunt, obviously. You loved the chase and the high of trying to solve a murder. So when the Night Stalker case came on your desk, did part of you feel excited? Did you feel juiced to try to, you know, put this case together? Well, when you get it, the initial, the initial, uh, your case, you know, I got it March 17th, 1985. It was just a routine mundane murder. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until others started cropping up that said, hey, wait a minute, these are connected. How many murders had you worked up till that point? You mean as part of the case or part, overall no, no, murders? No, overall. Oh, I don't know. You, you know. Lots? Lots. Uh -huh. you know, lots of murder. We have, uh, in L.A. County, the Sheriff's Department alone probably has, during that time, was having about 600, 600 murders a year. Yeah. And so then you divide those up, and sometimes you'd get... One year, I got 15 murders at one time. Mm -hmm. And so those are my murders. But then you go out on what they call a CIS. You know, if it's a bigger murder, you know, or officer, they, they send four people out. So now my name pops up not on 400, you know, 300 cases. Now it's going to pop up on 400 cases. So over 21 years, my name's popped up on an awful lot of cases. Thousands and thousands of yeah. cases. Um, do you, but when, when the, Night Stalker case began uh, and progressed. Are there officers that are jealous of you? 
They were officers. Because they that, want that case? No, they didn't want the case. They were officers who thought that I was a young punk motherfucker trying to make a name for didn't myself. Didn't deserve it? They thought you might not have deserved it? Well, Couldn't they, handle they, it? They, they didn't believe in it. They didn't believe mm-hmm. one man was doing what I was alleging. And I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. I really don't. They, I, it didn't piss me off that they didn't believe in me. It only pissed me off when they started calling me names. Right. When they'd call me names, then it pissed me off. But because you hear about the FBI and these criminal profilers. Okay. Criminal profilers, what they've done is they've documented every murder that they have documented. They've gone back. They've put all their shit in a computer. And so when you go back in criminal history, nobody has ever been documented doing what Richard did. He was, he was so inconsistent. Right. Okay. Pedophiles. Number one, they either like girls or they like boys. Mm -hmm. Very few of them like both. Right. Murder weapons. Serial killer normally does his killing the same fashion. Richard used blunt force trauma, uh, manual ligature strangulation, Mm -hmm. firearms, Mm -hmm. knives, machetes. Uh, he stomped the lady to death. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the different times of day, the different times of victims and where they Old, were. young. Yeah, it, it was so different. It was inconsistent. Yeah. And nobody had ever been documented doing it. Right. And well, so well, there's Bundy some- was, uh, hold on, John Wayne Gacy was young, good-looking boys. Yeah. Um, Bundy was- Girls. Girls, just women, young women, pretty, I guess, pretty young, pretty women. College age. College age women, that's right. Um, the Hillside Strangler. Also all, LA. All all women. All women. It seems like it's usually women, right? Um, you're right. Richard Ramirez was an iconoclast when it comes to that. You know, yeah, he was real different. And nobody's nobody's done it since Richard either. All right, you guys, it's that time. You already know we gotta take a minute to shout out our amazing longtime sponsor of the Connect, Mood. Mood is the number one online dispensary for Delta 8 and Delta 9 products in the entire country. Good friends of ours. Check it out. They have an array of gummies, edibles, concentrates, pre-rolls, flour, anything that you need that is perhaps not legal in your state, it is completely legal online. Delta 8 and Delta 9 products delivered straight to your door and you gotta get them from Mood. Mood Mood.co right now. If you go over there and order any product you want from their website and use the promo code CONNECT20, that's C-O-N-N-E-C-T-2-0, CONNECT20, you'll get 20% off your order. That's not all. If you use the promo code CONNECTFREE, that's C-O-N-N-E-C-T FREE, they will give you a free pack of Delta 9 gummies on the house. All you pay for is shipping. You guys, join the future. Go over to hellomood.co and order your Delta 8 and Delta 9 products today. All right, let's get back into the show. Okay, do you think there will be another serial killer? Oh, there's no doubt in my mind there's serial killers out there right now. Sure, but don't it, it, they get caught too quickly, do they not? Because of surveillance, because of DNA evidence? Sir, bad guys are just like cops. Uh, cops are thinking of different ways to solve cases through DNA, through surveillance. Bad guys are sitting thinking of different ways to beat the system. Okay, so, but bad guys, criminals, I I set in a different category than psychopath serial killers. Those are even smarter. They, they're, 
How smart was Richard though? You know, he he was, about it. he's the most articulate murderer I've ever talked to you. Uh-huh. He said here and said, I've got an ego that'll fill this, yeah. fill this room. I'll tell you everything about the time the Roman fed the Christians to the lions, yeah. to the modern day serial killer. Now you don't find regular serial killers talking like that. Maybe a Ted Kaczynski. You know. What does, what does it take to be a serial killer? What are, what's like the benchmark? How many bodies? Stay thin. Cause if you're fat, <laughs> you can't get away. Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know what it takes. Uh, you know, Richard asked me, why do you think I am this way? I said, Rich, if I had, if I could tell you why you are the way you are, I'd be a doctor making mm -hmm. a lot more money than I am as a cop. Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. fucking know. My job is to work the case, find enough evidence to make a presentation to the DA and find mm -hmm. you guilty. That's all I know about this shit. How, what, how, what age uh, was he when that happened? 25. So uh, my girlfriend brought up a good point. She was like, why, why did it take so long for him to start killing? Like, is it, was it something that snapped? Was it an event? I have no Do idea. Do we not know that? I have no idea. Because uh, he started killing maybe a year before you guys got onto him, right? That's kind of what they, they theorized. We have, we have him killing somebody as early as 1984. Okay, yeah. So he was about 24 then. I wonder what it was that, yeah, you know, how he was able to live, not a normal life, but a life without killings. He didn't even have a violent crime sheet. No, no he, kind of record. he started using cocaine. And heroin. And cocaine really messed with him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So he's already traumatized from childhood. He was abused horribly. He comes out here and yeah, the dope pushes him, causes him to snap. And he's already, you know, got some screws loose. I don't know. I wonder if- do I you don't want like, to find him. What's that? I just want to go out and find him. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't give a shit how he got like that. I just want yeah. to find him. Um, in your time, in your career- how many people that you locked up for murder were evil like Richard Ramirez or just made a mistake or, or victims of uh, environment, a gang member, uh, so a dope dealer? Well, most of the people that we put away are either dope dealers or gang members. Mm -hmm. You don't find too many uh, routine mundane murders, as I called them. You know, there was... I had one murder. You know, everybody makes, I hope your listeners listen to this and believe me, if I'd say nothing else is the truth. Politicians make such a great big fucking deal about gun control. In all the murders I worked, I had one murder where the gun that was used was legal. Mm -hmm. Every one of them are illegal guns. Mm -hmm. They're stolen, they're bought, they're now using these ghost guns. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those laws are only for law-abiding citizens. Mm -hmm. The people that are going to use the guns aren't law-abiding citizens and give two shits about what, what about you can the do. school shootings, though? What about the school shootings? Uh, those guns are usually legal. Well, the school shootings, if they wanted to protect the schools, if you look around, if you drive around here down through uh, the Fairfax area, mm -hmm. where they have a lot of Jewish schools. Mm -hmm. You see Jewish armed guards out in front of the schools. Right. Now, socialism doesn't want you to do that. In Israel, they have the same thing. Mm -hmm. They don't want to see guns on campus. They don't want to see guns on schools. Then you got to suffer the consequence. We can't account for everybody, every mm -hmm. gun that's used out there. You know, in this last uh, shit, the... The Asian guy that just went wacko, 68 years old, killed the people in Monterey Park. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was using an illegal gun. You, you look mm -hmm. at him, he looks like Harvey Milk, 68 years old. Mm -hmm. 
yet he had manufactured his own silencers, was mm -hmm. using automatic weapons. You know, he was doing his own thing. Yeah. Do you think that, so do you think the mass shooting has replaced the serial killer? Because on some level, serial killers that we know, the famous ones, they all loved attention. They loved the media. They loved uh, the had spectacle. An ego. He has an ego that'll fill the room. But you're asking the wrong guy. You're asking a cop. I don't know why these guys, why these wackos do that shit. Yeah. I don't do it. I'm more into drinking and sex. <laughs> Have fun. But these guys yeah. want to go out and kill people. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea why. Um, have you ever had to use your gun? I've never fired my on-duty weapon. I've come very, very close. Mm -hmm. I've been shot at by cops. By cops? By cops. Explain and, that. And it was quite easy. It was a CHP with the same guy that I had that murder with, with Art Adiano, but now we're working gangs. And CHP's in a pursuit, and they're coming up behind us. We can hear it on the radio. And I said, partner, there it is. They're coming up behind us. And it wasn't a pursuit. It was a failure to yield. Red lights and siren. The guy would pull over to the curb. They'd get out of the car, and he'd put it back and drive and go about five miles an hour. Hold on. I'm sorry. So California Highway Patrol pulls over a car. Okay. Suspect car. Gotcha. Suspect car. So I'm in a unmarked four-door Canary yellow matador with spotlights on it, wearing raid jackets. We're not in uniform, mm -hmm. but we got the sheriff raid jackets on. So I tell my partner, I said, hey, I'm tired of watching this guy hit parked cars. Next time he pulls to the curb, go with him. Just park at an angle in case they get out shooting guns. Mm -hmm. So that's what we do. He's driving. I get out of the car and I make the mistake of coming between the passenger door, my car, and his car. I get up to the front of his car, and he looks at me, and he smiles, and he puts it back down in gear like he's going to try and run me over. And I drew my gun. I said, you're a dead motherfucker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when I did that, the bookman, the number two guy in the highway patrol car, who would run up on the passenger side of the suspect's vehicle, pulled his gun out. So now his gun is pointing this way, my gun is pointing that way. The driver, who's day number 12 in the streets of Los Angeles County, gets out of his car and says, drop your gun. Oh. And I said, oh, fuck. The guy's got a gun that I'm not aware of. <laughs> yeah. And just then, my partner gets out of the car and his gun's out. So now you got two guns pointing this way, one. Yeah. And the bookman says, it's okay. They're cops. Wow. And he says, I said, partner, is he talking to us? And I said, he said, drop your guns, plural. And I said, he is talking to us. His partner says, it's okay. They're sheriffs. He then responds and says, I don't know who they are. Drop your guns. How so, stupid are cops? So I said, okay. <laughs> You got it. I threw my gun down on the ground. And as soon as I threw my gun, my gun down on the ground and my partner threw his, he went, bam. And he shot. So I jumped over the car and I told my partner, it's okay. I got another one right here on my ankle. I said, if he shoots again, I'll dump him. He's the, the California Highway Patrol <laughs> shot at you, yeah, missed. Missed. Thank God. And so we jumped wow. around the car. 
gang members that were watching all this started going, ooh, 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 ooh. They were getting excited. Where, where is this? What this part is of town? East LA, right there at the 710 Freeway by Eastern on Floral. Oh, my God. And so uh, he comes running up. His partner starts saying, you stupid motherfucker. Yeah, and he comes him. up, and he's begging for forgiveness. And I said, hey, get the fuck away from me. You better get back there and take care of that suspect, or they're going to lynch him for you. Right. And so then, bottom line, he ended up getting fired. Sure, as he should have. You know, I, Could have killed you. I felt bad. You know, he went through the academy and made it, but next time he'd have froze, and somebody would have gotten killed because he didn't react. Mm-hmm. Or he would have reacted the same way. It was because he was like profiling. He saw a big Latin his, Latino dude, and he his, figured he was a gangbanger. His uh, sergeant that wrote the article, wrote the paperwork up, said that the training given to him up in Sacramento, they put the fear of God in him that East LA was the worst place in the world. And so, if had a ten ton mad truck come by and sound its horn, he never would have heard it. That's what he he said. I I don't know. Mm. He, his attorney contacted me later, uh, apologizing because he was fighting his termination. Yeah. And he said, he's not going to win. Sorry to have to put you through this. I said, I don't care. I'm just going to testify what happened. Uh, so with the homicide cops versus everybody else, is there an ego? Is there a superiority complex? Yeah, there's gotta be, uh, you gotta have an ego that you think you're right. And this is the way it's going to go. You're making decisions. Uh, you only get one crack at the case and you fuck mm. it up and it's fucked up forever. But I meant between like, do you guys feel like you're better than ordinary California highway patrols, ordinary beat cops? That's an individual thing. Cause I'll tell you, honestly, I'm no better. I'm no better than any wino on the street. I'm no better than anybody. I'm just a regular. Okay. Well, you've achieved some kind of Zen because I I can tell you, you are better because you know, the honky that pulled his pistol out on you, uh, couldn't solve, uh, you know, couldn't put together a, you know, a homicide investigation. He could have written a good ticket though. Yeah, exactly. Now. So when, when all this stuff, how do you feel when like, uh, like in 2020, the George Floyd protests, (laughs) riots or whatever, you know, there's a huge like anti-cop or defund the police sentiment. Do you feel any kind of way about that? Or do you feel like it doesn't, people blaming cops doesn't apply to you because you were really a much more. Uh, it applies to all cops. They don't distinguish who they are. It, 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 hurt, it. it hurts everybody. So it hurts you. It, it It's uh, the bad thing. You know, when I came back from Vietnam, you couldn't talk about Vietnam because all the protests, you know, mm-hmm. killer, baby killers and mm-hmm. all this shit. Uh, so never talked to my family, never talked to anybody about Vietnam. And now I find myself in the same position. I don't talk much other to other cops when I'm lecturing about being a cop because it's not, you know, I, my grandson wanted to be a cop. And I told him, son, why don't you become a fireman? Everybody loves a fireman. Nobody loves fucking cops. <laughs> That's very you, true. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it's not good for you, but uh, they need them. You know, and anybody that wants to get into it right now, I think, are just uh, way better people than they were getting before because they have a real desire to want to do something right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the people, uh, now with the invention of uh, cell phones and cameras and everybody wants to stick their camera in your face and want to do everything and try and get you in trouble because it's always uh, our fault. When I was a kid, if I got in trouble in school, I'd get the shit beat out of me by my parents. Mm. 
And now today you get in trouble in school and the parents want to go down there and fight the school because mm-hmm. it's school's fault. Yeah. And you aren't doing this. Uh, parents that I've heard uh, blaming the law enforcement because their kid OD'd on this new drug, whatever they're taking, fentanyl, you know, and my kids didn't use drugs and they overdose from dr- overdose on fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And it's the cop's fault and it's the school's fault. Why mm-hmm. aren't they doing the well, what happened to, what are you doing at home? All right. And, do you feel uh, like it's your Catholicism being a Mexican? Do you think, uh, I think that's why a lot of Mexican in Chicanos in LA become cops is because you're, you've been raised with this pretty like strict Catholic idea of right and wrong. Kind of like Irish people become cops. No, I there be- something to that. No, I don't know if there is, but I, I became a cop because it, Age 17, a cop took me home and told my parents, sign for him to get off the streets or he'll end up dead or in prison. So you grew up like around gangbangers and yeah. shit like that? I was I was headed for no good. Yeah. And they signed for me at 17. I went in. I turned 18 November 29th and February 1st, I was in Vietnam. That's why. And you saw a lot of action over there. Yes, I did. You dropped some Charlies? And yeah. You know, we, we did what we had to do and it was, uh, it was, uh, an eye-opening experience. It was a learning experience. Uh-huh. It matured me. It gave me a new appreciation on life. Did those people that you used to hang out on the street with, did they end up dead or in prison? Or did, the, were they, did they everybody that around? everybody from the block, everybody yeah. from the Holbrook boys that went into the went into the armed forces yeah. and ended up as reasonable citizens. Wow. Those that didn't ended up dead or in prison. Wow. Interesting. You would think you'd go to Vietnam and come back a heroin addict, like a lot of those guys. A lot of guys did. I, I was I was blessed. I was fortunate. I had three goals in life when I came out. Uh, one was I wanted to become a cop to give back, save somebody's life like somebody had saved mine. Mm-hmm. Number two, I wanted to go to college. Nobody in my family, no siblings, no cousins, no nothing in my family had ever gone to college. That time I was naive enough to think that only rich white people went to college. Mm. But they had let me into junior college because I was a Vietnam vet. Yeah. And I, I got in and I got nothing but A's in the beginning. I, some congressman or somebody sent a letter home to my parents. and My mom looked and she said, Mijo, are you cheating? <laughs> I said, no, Ma, it's the new me. Yeah. what I want to do. Wow. And the third goal I had was to hook up with my ex-girlfriend that wrote me a Dear John in Vietnam. I wanted to get her eaten out of the palm of my hand so I could break it off in her and watch her suffer. Yeah. And, that's so sick. I love that. And that's such a fuck boy move. You wanted that, to get back with your I, girl I wanted, just to just to break her heart. Yeah. Just to get that, revenge. I wanted revenge. I had her eaten. I got out in June. By September, I had her eaten out of the palm of my hand. And the day after Christmas, we got married. Yeah, 52 years later. 52 years you later. Are. If wow. I'd have killed her that first year, I'd already been out of the joint. Yeah, <laughs> right. I know. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. When you um, when you arrest somebody for murder, uh-huh. you give them over to the DA. You bring them down. If you get a confession, or if you think you have enough evidence, you turn it over to the DA. They charge them with murder. Yes. How often are you asked to come to trial? Or to go to court to testify. Oh, if it's your case and they're going to fight it, you go every day. You well, certainly. Okay. Yeah, you, gotcha. to go there. Gotcha. you sit right there next to the DA at the investigator's table. 
Right. So did you learn a lot about, you must've learned a lot about the law and sure. court proceedings. You sure. could have been a lawyer. You, you have to learn uh, that stuff to be prepared to go ahead and give them the evidence, know what's going to go right in case yeah. you have to, you have to be well aware of what you can do. Yeah. And I do remember uh, I had a, a brand new deputy district attorney out of Almonte, Rio Hondo court. It was his first preliminary hearing on a murder case, and he was shitting peach pits. Mm -hmm. He was scared. You know, it was the first one. They said, hey, they just told me to come in here and do this. And I said, relax, son. Get some. Get a glass of water. Come here. Took him into a room, and I said, this is all you got to do. This is not the trial. All you have to do is present enough evidence to show that the crime we're alleging occurred. And there's a possibility that he did it. Mm -hmm. And if there's any evidence to show why he did it, just minimal. I'll tell you what to ask him. You just go in there and do it. And so we did it, held the guy to answer, and it was in. Probably about 10 years later, I'm at a party at a barbecue with the Almonte Police Department. And a DA comes up to me and says, hey, Gil, I want you to meet a friend of mine. And the guy looks at me and says, Gil doesn't remember me, but I'll never forgive him. He says, I used to be with the DA's office. I used to work with Dave here. And he says, I got my first murder prelim. He says, Dave, he took me into a jury room and gave me a class in one hour that would have taken a whole semester at college. Wow. And he says, got it to answer. He said, now I'm a defense attorney and everything's good. And, you could have been a DA. I could have been a DA. I could have been a defense attorney. I yeah. loved, I asked, I asked the wife, I loved criminal law when I was taking it in school. Mm -hmm. And I told the wife, I said, hey. Make a deal. Four more years of college. Give up four more years of personal life. I said, for a better job, better life. I become an attorney. I want to be a lawyer. And she didn't want to. Whoa. She said, I'd rather have the mediocre life, you know, because I was already a cop. She says, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm peaceful. Yeah. I don't want to lose uh, four more years of. Is part of you bitter that she didn't ride with your dream of being a lawyer? Yeah, but I had so much fun as a cop. You know, sure. <laughs> Sure. Uh, but I, I would have loved to have been an attorney. Yeah. Yeah. You would have been a really good attorney. Is there something, okay. Uh, I talked to a lot of criminals just doing this show and it's always the Mexican guys or the black guys that are like, if you get a black or a Mexican lawyer, you're fucked. We got to, you got to get a white lawyer, preferably a Jew. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I can see why. You see why? I can see why. Richard Ramirez, unfortunately had two inexperienced you know, yeah. Mexican lawyers. Is that, is that changed? Like now that Mexican people have been in LA so many generations, like has the stereotype of, you know, is that, is that no, still, they can either afford an attorney or they can't, if they can't, <laughs> they get the count, they get yeah. the public defender's office yeah. or the alternate attorney, uh, Richard Ramirez, they were hired privately by the family. So nobody could stop them. Yeah. And there was, uh, did they keep the lawyers on though? Cause yeah, they were, Daniel okay. and Arturo Hernandez, yeah. we used to call them the Hernandi. <laughs> and, uh, are they still working? Are they still no, one practicing? One of them dead. Uh, Daniel's dead. Arturo's still alive. Matter of fact, Arturo did a part in the, uh, he was in the documentary. In the documentary. Yeah. Uh, they brought on another guy, Ray, Ray Clark, black man. Mm -hmm. And the judge appointed him mm -hmm. because he said, these guys need help. You know? Right. So he took him through trial and Ray Clark said, they were above their edge. You know, we did the yeah. best we could. Yeah. At one point in time, they came up with an idea, bring the fam, bring the dad out here to testify that Richard was back in Texas during the time of murders. And so they did, they flew him out here and I had a book on 
every newspaper clipping that had gone out on a case. I went back and ah, I found a reporter that had interviewed his dad the day after his arrest. And the dad said, I hadn't seen him in three months or six months. Caught him lying. Yeah. yeah. And you presented that? Was that admissible oh, in court? Oh, oh yeah. Wow. I, I called up the El Paso Gazette and they said, oh, he left right after that case. He doesn't work here. I, where do you go? He said, he's in Miami. And I said, all right. So I picked up the phone, called up and I said, give me your two biggest newspaper you got in Miami. And the first one I called, I said, please don't hang up on me. I'm not crazy. I'm a cop. I'm looking for this guy. Have you ever, have you ever heard of him? And they said, oh yeah, you want to talk to him? He's here. And he got on the phone. I said, Hey, do you remember doing this interview? And he says, Oh yeah, I'll never forget that. And I said, want a vacation in LA? And so uh, put him on a plane, flew him yeah. out here and blew dad right out of the water. Wow. So could you have got him for perjury? He didn't, uh, the dad? Yeah. We, we could have, but it, it wasn't worth it. We had, it wasn't worth it. it right? It's too yeah. hard. In order to convict somebody of perjury, you have to show that they had the intent uh, of lying. Maybe right. this guy would say, hey, okay, I made a mistake. Yeah, sure, sure. Where, do you remember any murders that you testified at, murder uh, trials, cases that you testified at where the, the guy beat it? Yes. Not guilty verdicts? Yes. Oh, tell me about a good one that comes to mind. 1135 Clintonwood. Oh, that, yeah, that, that old, yeah, yeah, that yeah. old sea dog. Mary Cortez, you know, she was... Uh, it was a brutal murder, and I knew who did it. Can you tell us about it? Well, and then- and the nature of the murder? Can, how can I remember the address, the, the name, yeah. how she died, not be able to tell? And some of the details, I remember the big thing was, it was her nephew that did it. And he had come, uh, he did it in the middle of the night. He had to know his way inside the house. Mm -hmm. The dog didn't attack him. He knew the dog. He had been living there with his aunt for a while. <clears throat> And he uh, beat her, but he used duct tape. He used duct tape to tie her up here, and he used duct tape around her mouth. Mm -hmm. And we found, uh, when they peeled off the duct tape, we found a palm print on one of the first layers of the, of the uh, duct tape which means that he had to go around and push it down and mm -hmm. then around and push it mm -hmm. down. So it's not just like he borrowed the tape. Yeah. And then, so had him. It was a great case. I had a district attorney on that. It was a piece of shit. And he was all excited because he was, uh, it was his first murder trial also, but he was going to do it vertically. He was going to handle it from preliminary all the way through trial. Mm -hmm. And we showed up. There was a continuance on the prelim. And the daughters were there. It was a nice family. And he said, I need to talk to you. So I went in there with him, with the daughters and him. And he started talking to the And he says, I'm sorry to ask you these questions. I know it's making you upset. You're crying. But we have to make sure we have the right man because we're not even sure we have the right suspect yet. He said that in front of me. And I said, okay, that's enough questioning for today. I said, go ahead, girls. I'll contact you at the house later on. And I closed the door. And I told him, you motherfucker, you ever think, you ever say that you're not sure that that's the right guy. Yeah, in front, in front of the family. Me, I will fucking embarrass the shit out of you. And if you really believe that, well, then give the goddamn case up. You shouldn't be handling this. Because mm -hmm. you should only be handling cases if you think he's guilty. Right, totally. If and you if think you don't think so, then get rid of the fucking case. Wow. And he says, okay. So he sends me out. And then he tells me, I want you to go back. 
uh, calls me up and he says, I want you to go back and interview every inmate that has ever shared a cell with him to see if he copped out. I mean, he saw this, you know, on TV or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And I said, shit in one hand and wish in the other and see which one fills up first. I ain't fucking doing that. And I hung up on him. Before I got to my office, my lieutenant, who was Frank Salerno at the time, Frank Salerno said, Gil, what'd you piss off this time? The guy's name was Nick. Nick Rennie. I think that was his name. And he's, and I told him what he wanted. He said, well, do me a favor. Just go make it a cursory down to the jail. I said, Frank, I don't have to. The motherfucker was in a one-man cell, never spent another day with anybody mm-hmm. in his cell. So, too bad. So, I went back there. It got so bad, the judge even hated this DA. And Just because he was incompetent? He, he was a wise ass. He was no good. And lost the fucking case. Simply because... Uh, they, they allowed the judge... Okay, if, you put, if I put my thumbprint... As I move my head, I'm grabbing the mic to make sure I don't lose it. If I put it down with no pressure at all, there's a thumbprint there. Right. But if I put it down and I put a lot of pressure, mm-hmm. then the grooves will, s- will separate. Do you understand what uh, I'm saying? Okay. The pressure will make them separate a little. Right. So what they did was they got an old fucking trick and they did it in front of the jury. Guy got a ruler. Who's on, who's the guy? The defense uh, okay. defense expert. Gotcha. Got a ruler and put the fingerprint up there. This blown up picture now. Mm-hmm. So now it's wide. So we have two pictures. One was taken one to one, and one was taken wide. And he gets a ruler and he says, "Look at, they're a quarter of an inch apart here, but over here, places are only an eighth of an inch." And these aren't his prints. Yeah, is what they're trying to say. That's right. And they brought on, our expert said it was, their expert, uh, Smith. Arlo Smith said, I can't say for sure. I don't believe it is. And so that left doubt mm-hmm. in the jury's mind, mm-hmm. one juror. And so they didn't convict him. I wonder if guys like that get paid off, like in high oh, they profile do. We call cases. Them whores. We call them whores. Yeah, <laughs> whores they, for yeah, sure. Their defense hires them out. Yeah, and like it. just here's ten grand. If it's especially if it's like you know a big time drug case or whatever, or a, he, a baller. He lost everything. That one particular latent print guy, because as soon as he walked up the next day, he was doing court in downtown L.A. This one Pomona went downtown L.A. We put out the word right away. This is what he did. Carl Hedgkin. God damn, what a memory I have. And Carl Hedgkin went ahead, uh, went down there to testify, and LAPD just told him. You testify like you testified yesterday in Pomona. We're going to hook you up so you, as soon as you stick off the stand. What does that mean? To a polygraph? No, that was for latent print. If he lied like he did over but how, there. But, but how do you, how can you prove that he lied, though? didn't matter if they could prove it. They were going to hook his ass up and worry about proving. They had other experts in there. He'll get up there and testify this, 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 like yeah. he did in ours. And if the jury buys it, who cares if it's right or wrong? And they were going to hook him up for perjury. Wow. So you were just, you were that mad. You were, oh, you were yeah. basically like, we'll take our chances with the perjury. We're going to fucking yeah. Yeah, hook ex- you. Exactly. You so threatened him. He was, uh, he was fucked and, and not too much longer. He died. So you started working homicide in 1981. When did DNA forensics start to 
come into play and how did that change your investigations? Not until the late eighties. And then even in the early nineties, and it didn't change the investigation that much because the early stages of DNA were number one, extremely expensive uh, to test and very, very time consuming. It took a long time for results to come back. Mm-hmm. So they weren't used that widely in the beginning. As time went on, they became to be able to turn them around within days and mm-hmm. less expensive, more units going up. I remember we had, we had a case, uh, in the city of Azusa and we sent it, we had to send it up to Sacramento for, uh, testing. Yeah. That was for a pubic hair. Nice. And, uh, nice. Leave that old pubic hair in the Coke can. You know, it, 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 it killed me because I know the guy did it and, and initial DNA, there wasn't enough on the hair to do it. And I've asked now if they've gone back to resubmit, uh, the guy was a, he was a killer. So you, so they could, you, they could resubmit that in today's day and age and, and put a cold case on, like they could still go back and get oh, yeah. that guy. Yeah. Okay. So that he wasn't, but isn't that double jeopardy though? No, only if you're tried, if you go to trial. So they never tried that guy. They never tried gotcha. the case. Uh, okay. Uh, going back to the murder investigations, I'm fascinated by how you get away with murder. Cause to me, I'm like, I can't get away with anything. I couldn't get away with skipping school. How did you find any, like, were any murder cases that you testified at, uh, uh, did they all hinge, did any of them hinge on a witness testimony? And did any of those witnesses ever go missing, thus resulting in uh, a not guilty verdict? No. I never lost a witness to missing, whether they were killed or just ratted out. Right. Uh, did, it, did you have any of them... Uh, refuse to testify the day of court, like get cold feet and then refuse to go through with it. No, Gil talks them into a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. They're more scared of Gil and, than and, they and are. And, of, Gil, uh, and Gil and Gil's easy going. I, I can remember serving a subpoena on a man that owned a leather, uh, shoe store, mm. a shoe repair store. Mm-hmm. And right there in East Los Angeles. And there was an elementary school right across the street from up the block there was a daytime murder and a good little 16 year old kid could have been a golden glove boxer. Mm-hmm. Wasn't a gang member, just got caught wrong time, wrong place. And they killed him and he witnessed it. So I went down there and served him a subpoena to go to court and testify. And this guy told me on how he wasn't going to go testify and how he didn't want to go testify. And he's got a store and he's got a family. And I sat there and I played with him and I said, if it was your son, and I had them all but crying. Mm-hmm. Wow. We, we need you. And he finally says, okay, I'll go. I gave him the subpoena. I signed it. I walked out the front door. When I got out the front, there was a fucking shooting going on in the elementary school across the street. Wow. The kids knew better. They just automatically dive on the ground. Mm-hmm. They're laying down. They're taught. Yeah. And the big guys are shooting back and forth at each other. And I grabbed, we didn't have radios in. I grabbed the public phone right there and I called the stage. I said, God damn it, get some mutes down here right now. There's a shooting going on right across. The-. And they're saying, Gil, calm down. You're okay. I said, I'm okay, but just hurry up. Yeah. So I hang up with them. I walk back into the guy. I said, give me the speed. I said, you ain't got to go to court. I couldn't make that man go to court. I didn't give a shit if the guy walked or not. Just because of the. Yeah. If, if this violent. If he's, he's got to live in it and he's yeah. seeing it and it's yeah. going on right across the street right. from him. 
Right. You know, th- those guys are ruthless. Sometimes. What kind of gangs then in East LA mm. then versus now? Like what were the gangs back in the eighties and nineties, like the Latino gang specifically on the East side of LA? What do you mean? What are their names or what are they? Yeah. Like what are the gang sets? Like we've all heard of like the Mexican mafia, but I think that's more like La is more like a prison gang. That's a prison gang. What, back, what, back in East LA in our area, uh, we had Garrity. Garrity had the high ground. So Garrity, I was king of the hill. Anybody tried to get him, they'd get assassinated before they get up the hill. Uh, you had a loyal, which was in the hole. Which means right down right, below there, lawyer, there, yeah. there's a loyal. You had white fence over there. You had Lotte. You had Maravilla. You had uh, the Rock, uh, Little Valley. Uh, and these are sets that are just Barrio Nuevo Estrada Viene. Uh, these are sets that are just beefing over streets. Streets. Wow, wow. And then were they involved in dope dealing? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And were they controlled? by Lame from prison or some did some were some didn't uh-huh. uh that led to more shootings because emma came in and guys from garrity said fuck you you ain't gonna tell us what to do this is our area yeah and just like in war i mean garrity had we used to call them the elps they had big hill and they had the top of and the streets were whining if you didn't know your way around you'd get lost really easy yeah totally yeah no that part of east la is fascinating because it's so it's good property it's you got a nice view of downtown and you know, it's like beautiful, but I don't know. They choose to gangbang over there. I don't know why. I don't know why either. Yeah. It's, uh, I get why Mexican immigrants come over and sell dope because this is how you make money, but I never understood the gangbanging. I don't know. I, I feel sorry for the guys. You know, they say you can't do it. These guys that are pushing elote carts, mm-hmm. selling flowers on the corner, mm-hmm. oranges. I mean, I'm not a rich man, but if I walk by and there's a lady selling flowers, I'll give her money out of my pocket and I won't take her flowers. Yeah. They're, they're trying to get money any way they can. And they could be out robbing. They could be out burglarizing. They could be out selling dope, selling her ass, but they're not. They're trying. Well, she's pretty old to sell her ass. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there, what, what, I'll talk about Richard a little more and then I guess we'll wrap. What is the, you know, I know like the, the, sexual assault on the, the six-year-old really got to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about that in the documentary. W- w- was there a murder? But aside from that, was there one particular murder in that case that really affected you? No. Did you oh, pr- murder's murder. Yeah. Now, did you f- take it personal that you hadn't found him? Did you, when, when these bodies kept dropping and the investigation kept stretching longer and longer, do you take it personal or is it just business to you? It's business, but I was telling Frank, uh, Frank, is it wrong for me to want another murder? Right. I wanted somebody else to die. We needed another clue. <laughs> you needed one, right? Yeah. So let's let's do what we can to solve the case. Could you have found him if he had just stopped killing people? Do you think you would have found him eventually, or yeah. could he just? We when he went down to uh, Mission Viejo, we said we'd have him within two weeks. We had no idea who he was, no name, no nothing. And we told the boss, we'll have him in two weeks. That was a week before he was captured. Wow. So he went after the Mission Viejo murder, he went up to San Francisco and killed Peter Pan? No, he killed Peter Pan before he Oh, okay. He went gotcha. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Um, San Francisco PD really fucked up. They, they fucked up putting that... Uh, 
What were they thinking? Carl Klotz. I don't know. God damn it. They're stupid. I don't even want to see him because I know he's the kind of guy that'll get drunk and he'll want to fight. Yeah. You know, he, he's, uh, what he said on that program was. Let's, let's go over for the people that haven't seen the documentary. Can you recount what happened? No, you're going to have to watch the documentary. It's very well done. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. He, uh, he went ahead and he found Armando Rodriguez, who was a friend of Richard's right. from El Paso. We found him up there. And so he's asking Armando for Richard's last name. Armando's playing hardball, said, I ain't going to give you his last fucking mm. name. Fuck you. And so Carl Klotz said, I, so I just fucking turned around and hit him right he in the face. Started counting him. Right. Yeah. And I'm sitting there saying, why the fuck would you do that? You know, or admit that. Admit that's a crime. Right. You know, right. why, you know, it, it shows that he's Bravo, you know, could, could that have, mm-hmm. could that have gotten the case tossed? Yes. If you had a good enough lawyer, uh, could that have gotten Richard Ramirez's murder case tossed? We didn't part of it. Yeah. Part, part of it. Because you have like, you beat a confession go, out of a guy. You have to go back to it's, it's called fruits of the poison tree. Mm-hmm. So everything after the tree is poison that hit. Okay. Information that we got out of that. Would be no good. Right. Because you got his full name. Yeah. You only knew him as Rick. And that led, that full name led to a match on a fingerprint, on a fingerprint card. Right. So then you got to throw out the positive identification. Shit. So it it could have, however. That probably would have had to go mm, up to like the Supreme Court. There was enough evidence aside from that Mm -hmm. to indicate that we would have found him anyway. Because we already had. From what though? Not the shoe print. That was a dead end, wasn't it? No, the shoe print was not a dead end. We, there was like a fingerprint uh, yeah. reality. And in one case, we actually submitted, uh, I can't remember the gal's name, Gladys, uh, because she didn't. She wasn't a murder victim. She died of natural old age. Her house was a burglarized, and he went in through her kitchen window with a footprint and a handprint right on the oh. kitchen sink. So we used it to show that there was a handprint and a mm-hmm. footprint together. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And therefore, but we didn't use it as a case yeah. against him because we didn't want to, yeah. all we wanted was the murder stuff. I feel like today you can match a fingerprint so easily. Everything's digitized. I really do think it's harder to be a serial killer. I think it's, I think it's more difficult because you're just going to get caught quicker if you're killing that many people. Although on the other hand, what about this? I've heard that the easiest way to get away with murder is just to kill a stranger. Yeah. Because then there's no connection. There's no motive. Get on a plane, fly to New York, get off the plane, go downtown, kill somebody, get back on a plane and fly back to LA. Yeah. Because there's no, because in general, there's a motive behind a murder. In, in old days, most murders were committed by people that you knew. Right. Were related to them. Now that that's not the case at all. It's all strangers. But really, the biggest, yeah, the biggest thing that, un, that solves murder is people talk. Yeah. But what's the motive though? Like, do you find like domestics? Did you have a lot of domestic violence uh, murders? Yeah, we had some, yeah. uh, but they weren't the leading cause of uh, murders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And your, and your experience in LA, it was, it was gang banging and dope dealing. Yeah. How did your life change in the force after the Night Stalker case? People believed in me a little uh-huh. bit more. Well, you were a star. They gave me a little more credit. Uh, the guys that I worked with were relentless. You know, they, they didn't really give a shit because to them, a night stalker is just another murder. That's all it is. You know, 
everybody's fascinated in the outside world because yeah. it's a high profile case, but up there, a murder's a murder to us. And we don't talk to each other about our murders. And really, you know, yeah, we don't, we sh they have a Wednesday meeting. It used to be a Wednesday meeting. Now they're telling me it's on Thursdays. Uh, where you get up there and everybody talk about the murders they had this week. Yeah. That way you could compare notes in case somebody has something else. Right. Going. Uh, but aside from that, then it's like, uh, okay, ready, break. Everybody goes their separate ways. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so after the Night Stalker, uh, you're, did you get a raise? Did you get a better, did you get a promotion? No. That's <laughs> fucked. <laughs> That's cop work. That's government they, work they, for they you. Would, uh, they did call me in couple of times, Frank and myself yeah. got called in on other cases where they took us out of the rotation. In other words, I'm number five in the rotation. Something comes up, bam, they want you to handle it. Mm -hmm. You go to number one and they, they'd give us murders like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you can maybe get shot to the, if something was real important or real urgent, they would put you guys on it. Yeah. When did you get approached about the documentary? What year? Uh, that was just a few years ago. Uh, a friend, uh, uh, Brian uh, Gracias. He was a former deputy sheriff. I knew his whole family, his grandparents, everything. He had been a deputy, got injured, was now retired from the department, was writing for uh, Chicago PD, a television program. He was writing for them. Oh, okay. And uh, he had a friend, a co-writer, Tim Walsh, great guy. Uh, Brian called me up and he says, hey, you know, I've been doing this writing. And he says... And I've been talking to Tim, my co-writer. And if you look at TV, there are no Mexican good guys. All Mexicans are dopers, rapers, robbers. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't do anything good. They're no heroes. Yeah, unless it's George Lopez to come. <laughs> yeah, you know? so I want to uh, talk to you about doing something. He says, Gil, you've got everything going, whether you realize it or not. So they took me out to dinner. We talked. I told uh, Tim Walsh, I don't give two shits about television. I really don't care. You know, I don't care about the money. I'm retired. I'll never be a rich man. You know, this is all good. People have talked to me about documentaries before. And yeah. It's just talk. I went, went home that night. Wife said, how'd it go? I said, I got a good steak. Got some nice wine. Yeah. I said, just more bullshit. <laughs> Next morning, Brian called me up and he says, hey, the guy loves you. He really did. And I said, okay, well, good. It was nice meeting him. I got a new friend. Never heard anything more for about a year and a half. Then I get a call from Tim Walsh, and he just says, hey, how about meeting me for dinner? I want somebody else I want to introduce you to, and that's when he introduced me to the director, Tiller Russell. Yeah. And Tiller was a great guy. He is a great guy. He was just so good to me. Yeah. And uh, we did it on a handshake. Wow. Did you get paid? You got, oh, you got some nice money? Yeah, I got some nice money. Yeah. I was happy. He, he made See no that Escalade outside? Yeah, made, like, okay, made no bullshit money. about it. I had the Escalade before I had Netflix. Nice. This is my th third Escalade, I think. Okay. Okay. I had, I had, when I was a kid, I had three dreams. You know, my bucket list. I wanted a Harley Davidson. I wanted a pair of Florsheim shoes and I wanted a Cadillac. God damn. And so I've had the, I've had the Harley. Yeah. I've had the Cadillacs. I love Cadillacs and the Florsheim shoes. I bought a pair of them, threw them away. They hurt so bad. I never yeah. wore them again. Yeah. Right. Those are the ones my dad used to wear, so I want to be like my dad. And yeah. Not me, son. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, it's, it was, he killed that documentary. It's amazing. It's it amazing. Was, it made, uh, Netflix was excited. It was number one for a week and a half. Yeah. Trending in the yep. U.S. and number six in the world. Yeah. Do you think, do you feel any kind of way about like, 
giving Richard that kind of shine, you know, like, uh-huh. to, you know, I, I think it's kind of sick that, you know, they're able to like posture and, uh, you know, treat this as like, they're, they're, they're the stars of their own movie. You know, do you think uh, we shouldn't do that? We shouldn't celebrate serial killers. I don't uh, really know. I think there was a story to be told and, mm. uh, it, it took, uh, an act of Congress to get my wife to go along with it. Yeah. She's an introvert. She didn't want to. And I finally said, I can't make you do this dear, but just think of what you can do for other wives that are married to cops Yeah, to give them what it looks like from the other side. Right. And so she did it. I, I haven't Plus heard you owe me from that law school thing. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard uh, anybody say anything, but great things about it. Yeah. Uh, so far I've even been asked, and I keep saying, no, no, I won't do it to go like, uh, I love comedy you know? mm. and I go watch before I started with George, before we got into politics, I, I'd pay good money to go see George. Yeah. And I go see comedies, comics all over. Well, once he got into politics, I didn't like it. So I stopped going. Mm-hmm. Then the show happened and he found me. Yeah. And so it was all cool. This was all good. I'm going to see all these guys. And now they're saying, why don't you go to the improv? I was just at the improv the other day. He said, and I know the manager there. And he says, why don't you bring your slide presentation and do a night with a night stalker at the improv? Yeah. And he says, they'd give you half the door and this place would be sold out in a heartbeat. And I'm sitting there saying, that'd be cool to do. I'd like to do that. But... I think of, not Richard, I think of the surviving victims mm-hmm. and the girl, you know, Anastasia. Yeah. Her and I are good friends now. Oh, that's great. And her only down, she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Her only downfall, she's a San Diego Padres fan. But <laughs> aside from that, she's good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's good of you, I guess, right? To think about yeah. the victims because it's, you know, it must have been hard for them to go on record even. Yeah, it talk was, about that horrific I told, shit. I told Tiller the very first day, I said, I'll tell you right now, don't ask me to help you find anybody because I won't. Mm-hmm. They've been through enough and I won't do anything to put them through anything yeah. more. And I got a phone call a few months later. They found Anastasia. They said, mm-hmm. she wants to talk to you. Yeah. I hadn't talked to her since she was six years old. Yeah. Damn. So got on the phone and she started. we started talking. She says, I don't even know where to start. I know I've wanted to talk to you so bad for so many years, but I was only six and you were this big man. And, you know, what were we going to talk about? It was different. And before you know it, we we're both crying. Yeah. And I told her, don't do this shit. You know, don't do it for me. Don't do it unless you really want to do mm-hmm. this. Or I don't know what they're offering you or what they're doing. And I, next thing I know, they're calling me up. They said, hey, she's agreed to do it if you show up on the set. And so I went down on set and we hugged and we saw each other for the first time. And I've seen her a few times. She feels safe with you. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah, she does. Do you think, uh, would you have liked to seen Richard get the death penalty? Do you believe in the death penalty for crimes, you know, of that magnitude? Oh, I believe in the death penalty. I, yeah. I do. I, I don't believe it's a deterrent. Death penalty is not a you deterrent don't? for okay. anybody. No, because uh, murder is a an irrational act followed by acts of rationality. Mm. So you killed somebody that's irrational. Now it's rational. Uh Oh, now I got to cover it up and get away. Well, what's irrational about it though? If somebody, Mm. what if it's in the line of business? Then it's not a murder. That's, that's a homicide taking the life of another, but that's not a murder. There's a big difference between 
homicide and murder. Please indulge us if you wouldn't mind. Okay. What's uh, a homicide? Homicide is merely by definition is taking the life of another. Mm-hmm. So that means I've got a gun pointed at your head and your partner sees that I'm about to kill you. So he kills me. That's not a murder. But I meant uh, if I am a drug trafficker and okay. I have to, I have an informant in my organization who is going to, who's ratting, who's hey. working with the DEA. Yeah. If I don't take him out, my whole organization's going to fall. It's just a survival. This is business. And I go kill that man. What is the difference between that? That's business at the end of the day. That's a murder at the end of the day. Okay. There, he doesn't have, nobody has the right. Well, why is that irrational? I guess. It's irrational because a rational person wouldn't go around killing people knowing that they may end up going to prison. But isn't that immoral different than morality is different than rationality or is it not? No, I, I, I don't see morals in either way. Morally it's wrong. Of but course. Rationally, you know, he, that's why laws are codified. That's why they're on the books to say that you can't do that. You don't have the right to do that. That's what they have courts for. That's what they have. You, you don't want them ratting on you. Well, don't be a fucking dope dealer. Don't you think that's a deterrent though? No, because when they do it, they don't think they're going to get caught. Mm. And if you're going to go rat on me, cause I did it. Well, now I'm going to kill you too. Mm. You know, they don't think they're going to get caught. So the murders you worked, they, they were trying to get away with it. Yeah. They're murders. If they're not a murderer, then we wouldn't prosecute them. Did you have any, any cases where you felt like the guy wanted to get caught? Yeah. Murder? Richard. Yeah. He was tired. Yeah. He said he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After that foot chase, he said, I, don't, I didn't care if they killed me. Uh, he knew he was getting hot. Mm-hmm. He was, was he trying to get out of town? Uh, was he trying to get on that Greyhound bus? No, he was actually trying to get to his brother's house. He came in on a Greyhound bus from Arizona. Right. We had uh, people all around the bus depot because we knew that's where he hung out at. Mm. And we were told he's going to make it as soon as you get out because you guys can look dirty, but you don't smell dirty. Your teeth aren't rotten. Your yeah. hair is clean. So what he did was he came in on a Greyhound bus, but instead of going out into the general population area, he came, he saw the people. He came out the way the bus went in. Mm-hmm. He went down to a local liquor store saw the newspaper on a rack, saw his picture, got on the RTD. All he had to do was make it eight miles down Olympic Boulevard. Yeah. He had a brother that lived over there, 1,200 block, 1,400 block of Brannock. Mm-hmm. And uh, if he'd made it that far, then he'd have been running. Yeah. But Why he did he come mad. back to town? He, he didn't know he was hot. He, he didn't know he was hot. He didn't know he was hot. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He didn't know he had been identified. We didn't identify him publicly till Friday night. Okay. And by that time, he was already on a bus on the way back. Was he the first uh, non-white serial killer? I don't know. I've never studied serial killers. Did you feel like some kind of pride? You're like, at least we can do that too. No, I didn't <laughs> give a shit. He's just another killer. He's another case. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't, a lot of people, you know, I don't see colors. You know, I Okay, see, okay. I, but I don't see black, white. Pr- pretend you do. Who commits the most murder? <laughs> Fuck, I don't know. White people are crazy. <laughs> White people are crazy, dude. Now, uh, interesting. Were they in, in all the murders you worked and testified at were white murders, the, just like the creepiest kind, or did you see any, you see, they're not, they're not, they're not, you know, to you, they're creepy. You know, that people see right now, if you went out there 
and a big dump truck came by and ran over somebody. And the guy's got $10,000 clutched in his hand and he's decapitated and his guts are all mm-hmm. over the fucking mm-hmm. place. You guys would walk up and see the blood, guts, and gore. I'd walk up and see the $10,000 first. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would. You know, so that's very, all this is scientific. None of them are uh, gorier than others. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you're either dead or you're not. Are you, what's your biggest regret about that, about your career, about that time? I don't have any regrets. You know, I, I don't, I, I guess if I was smarter, if I was smarter, I would have applied to promote sooner, mm. but I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, the, the new sheriff came in town, saw me at homicide and he says, where are you on the sergeant's list? I said, I'm not. He said, why not? I said, I didn't take it. He said, why didn't you take it? I said, cause if I take it, then I got to transfer out of here. I said, I'm making top step sergeant's pay here. I don't have to deal with citizen complaints. I don't have to punch a fucking clock. I love what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I said, why would I want to leave? Mm-hmm. So you really loved what you did. Yeah. You ran it for the lifestyle. Yeah. I said, I wouldn't, he says, I wouldn't make you leave. I said, well, you weren't the sheriff then. Okay. Okay. Is part of you happy that murder takes place so you get to live that life? Because if there were no murders, if you lived in Portland, Oregon, where I'm from, there's 100 murders a year at most. You wouldn't get to live this. There's so many fucking dopers ripping the place apart up in the. Yeah, but there's that. But but the homicide, you guys, you know, the homicides, uh, probably 10 people at best. Are you, as part of you, kind of get juiced? When you know that there's a body for if you. If I know to- there's a good good murder working right now, yeah. When they had this Golden State Killer. Yeah. I wish I was working on the Golden State Killer. Yeah. It's a good murder. I want to work it, but mm-hmm. I'm not called upon to do it anymore. Somebody, yeah. else, somebody else is, but I still get turned on by him. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll you, you, uh, do you have a shrink? Did you need therapy no. after any of this? No. I got a wife. <laughs> did, uh, did you quit drinking? No. No, hell no. Did you quit screwing? No. <laughs> Only my wife. Only the wife. Only because she says so. Good no, screwing. I'm just <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll leave you th- with this one last uh, anecdote. You know, when I went to middle management school, we're sitting around a room and you go around like if you're an alcoholic, you know, you say, hey, I'm Gil Carrillo, 35 years, yeah. Lieutenant Sheriff's Homicide. And the guy comes around and he says, 35 years, he says, you know, he says, do you realize you're working for free? And I said, yes. And he says, no, I'm serious. If not free, damn near it. And I said, yes, I do. He says, well, then why? I said, correct me if I'm wrong. This morning, I heard you talking over in the corner with some of the fellows, and you were talking about this golf tournament you played in. You paid $250 to play in the best damn golf tournament you've ever played in. He says, yeah, it was fucking great. I love golf. I said, that's my point. He said, what's your point? You pay $250 to do what you love. I do it for free. Wow. So, would, would you be a, a homicide cop again for free? If you had the money? Oh, yeah. You had all the money in the world, you'd do this yeah. shit? Oh, fuck yes. Wow. In a heartbeat. It was always my dream to retire as the captain from Homicide Bureau, and I didn't get it. What'd you retire as? Lieutenant. Okay. So you had guys working for you. I had 14. There were six teams up there. Each team had 14 guys. I had 14. The captain runs the whole bureau. That's what I wanted to do. 
A damn fine career. Well, my friend, you've served Los Angeles. Uh, we really appreciate you. Uh, go check out the documentary, folks. If you haven't seen it, I'm I'm here with a star right now. <laughs> you know, well, that's amazing, man. Check John, him out. Uh, Johnny's got low standards. <laughs> <laughs> check out uh, check him out on George Lopez's uh, yeah, their old podcast. They're not really doing it anymore. You might start yeah. again. You don't yeah. know. Uh, you might start doing stand up comedy or sit down comedy. I, I like that. You know, I was offered. Uh, they they've been asking me to do stand up. Guys, I go, hey, come on. Do three minutes, do 10 minutes, Gil. Come on, fill yeah. it in, do it. And I've never done it. I've gone up on stage with the guys and we've dialogued back and forth. And I remember one, they asked if I believe they were talking about aliens. I said, do you believe in aliens? And I said, no. They said, why not? I said, I don't look up in the fucking sky. I said, I don't give a shit about what's up in the sky. I'm down here. And he said, well, what happens one night if you're in your house all alone and you hear some noise at the end of the hallway. You get up and there's a fucking alien. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to jump out the fucking window. <laughs> I said, I'm Mexican. I don't hang around like white people in the movies. Hey, yeah. <laughs> who is that? What are you doing? I get the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> and people are laughing. He says, okay. He says, well, you wake up. You're the only one in the house. You wake up and the alien's giving you a blowjob. He says, what do you do? I said, well, I got a little time. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so there, and we do shit and it's fun. And I love hanging around with them because they're really funny in the green room. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was, it, That's it was, great, man. I was just with Momo Rodriguez this last Saturday, Sunday at the uh, improv. It was, it was a great funny. club, man. I'll be there yeah. soon. Come out to a show, buddy. Is that right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to make it down there. Senor Gill. Thank you so much, my man. Thank you. Great Th times. Thank you for having me. You got it, brother. Take care. All right. <laughs>